Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause with a very special episode of The Richard Krause Show. A little bit later on, we'll talk to Christopher Nolan about going to the movies and why it's important. He, of course, directed Dunkirk that's in theaters right now. First up, though, we'll meet Jeff Skoll, head of Participant Media, and the former vice president of the United States, Al Gore. We talked about their new film, An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power. Congratulations on the film. Thank you. Yes, and, thank you. And so there's a couple of things here that I just want to run through uh, fairly quickly. We're going to run a, a sidebar that I think is going to be called Al Gore's take on three key Canadian environmental issues. Okay. So give me your thoughts if you if you can. Flooding on Lake Ontario was doubled litter on the shoreline. There's threats of tsunamis on the Great Lakes. And the $300 million Great Lakes restoration program in the U.S. was under threat by Donald Trump, although it's now back in the budget. What should Canadians know about these unique bodies of water? What is the biggest threat and what can we do to preserve them? Well, Canada has more lakes than the rest of the entire world put together. And the amount of fresh water here in Canada is just absolutely incredible. And along with the U.S., uh, our two countries must recognize the unique importance and value of the Great Lakes. Actually, the decision by the Congress to reverse the recommendation of Donald Trump and restore funding for the protection of the Great Lakes is a good sign that our binational cooperation will continue in spite of Donald Trump. I hope that extends to other environmental issues as well. I know it will extend to some other issues. Uh, now, the litter problem, you know, uh, since the 1950s, the world has produced an incredible volume of plastic, and almost all of it is still with us. It's in the oceans, it's frozen in the Arctic ice, uh, it, it's threatening sea life, some of it's showing up in the fish that people catch for consumption. Uh, and of course, litter is more than plastic, but that's the worst single part of it. And we really have to come to grips with that. And as for your third uh, issue, the emergence uh, of uh, windstorms with uh, winds of unusual uh, speed and ferocity, that's due to the extra heat energy being trapped in the atmosphere by man-made global warming pollution. Uh, we now trap as much heat in the Earth's system every day, extra heat, as would be released by 400,000 Hiroshima-class atomic bombs going off every day. It's a big planet, but that's a lot of energy. And with the uh, melting of the ice cover on, on lakes, not least the Great Lakes, the winds pick up more speed because of that, too. I want to ask about the pipelines. So in the last couple of years, Ottawa gave the green light to Kinder Morgan's Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, last year, Trump has approved the Keystone XL. Pipelines seem inevitable, but what should environmentalists do to make sure that as these projects go ahead, if they do go ahead, uh, what do we do to make sure that there is as little negative environmental impact as possible, and what have we learned from the past? Well, first of all, that's a, yet another issue where the United States Senate refused to go along with uh, President Trump's recommendation to cut out one of the laws requiring extra attention uh, to stopping leaks and to ensuring safety. Uh, I personally would like to see 
a much quicker transition away from all fossil fuels. And I'm not happy about all these pipelines in my own country as well. But I recognize we're in a transition period, getting a price on carbon, getting a global policy in place. Those are important steps now. And as the cost of renewable energy, not only for uh, powering uh, the electric generating uh, process, but also now to replace uh, uh, internal combustion engines with EVs being introduced by every manufacturer of cars in the world, that gives us a chance to uh, speed up this transition in the years ahead. One final question in this little segment here. Uh, what can be done to make sure that Canada's indigenous groups are more involved in key environmental decisions? Well, I think it's important to do so, and I admire Justin Trudeau's leadership in uh, taking steps to uh, provide the respect and opportunities for participation that have long been needed. And as an environmentalist, I will say that uh, it is striking how many environmental struggles are actually now being led by indigenous peoples. Uh, we have seen in the United States, in Seattle, uh, for example, the Lumi tribe uh, actually won a huge victory to reduce carbon emissions and coal exports. And uh, the Standing Rock Sioux uh, taught the entire world a lesson with their powerful teaching, uh, water is life. Uh, there's a battle right now in the Grand Canyon uh, with the Havasupai uh, who are trying to uh, prevent the contamination of water supplies in that region with a new uranium mine that can disrupt underwater, uh, underground water supplies. Uh, there are many other examples that I could cite, but I'll, I'll just uh, sum up by saying that there is a lot of wisdom that can be found in, in, in tribes and uh, in uh, the traditions and teachings of indigenous peoples that all of us would do well to heed. Jeff Skoll is with us as well. Um, tell me how you became involved uh, with Mr. Gore and this project, and why now, 10 years later, mm. are we seeing another inconvenient sequel? That didn't it, sound right, but it, you know what I mean. It, another, it, another, indeed. A follow-up, though. Indeed. Here we are, uh, an inconvenient sequel, uh, opening uh, August 4th all across Canada. And um, this really started uh, in 2005 when I saw Al uh, do his slideshow presentation. And at that point, Al had been going around uh, showing his uh, slideshow to 100 people, 200 people at a time. And it, it, it blew me away how urgent. Uh, the issue was and how little uh, people knew about it. Uh, so after Al's presentation, and uh, you know, I just started Participant Media, my uh, film company about you know, important world issues, uh, approached Al and said, "Well, what if we what if we made this into a movie, and uh, you know, brought it to millions of people around the world?" I and said, I, "Bad idea." And Al <laughs> said, "Al said, bad idea." And uh, well, we we weren't too sure ourselves, but we felt it was important and uh, to try to get the word out. Uh, so, um, in a miraculous. Uh, Next couple of years, uh, the film got out in a in a way uh, that reached about a billion people. Not a billion people saw the movie, but articles about the movie. Right. We invented the phrase "an inconvenient truth," and the uh, uh, Americans uh, who cared about 
climate uh, went from about 30% in 2005, before the film was released, to 87% the year after the film was released. And we thought, this is great, um, battle over, things are going to change. Uh, now, of course, they didn't. It got super complicated. And over the years, uh, uh, the vice president and myself and our teams uh, have talked about, is it time to do a follow-up? Is it time to do a, 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 a movie, a show, something uh, to catch up on what the first film uh, left us with? So uh, a couple of years ago, April uh, 2015, uh, Al and I sat together, and Al very wisely said, you know, it's been 10 years since we started the first film. A lot has happened in the world, and a lot of people are wondering, what did we get right? What did we get wrong? Why don't we tell that story? I think we have the permission with that 10-year anniversary. And uh, what what else is new that people might get excited about? And we realized the the economics and the adoption of clean tech Mm -hmm. and uh, electrical electric cars and batteries, things were coming to a point where it almost made no sense anymore to have fossil fuels. Uh, So we were excited to tell that story. Uh, We filmed it almost entirely prior to the U.S. election, not expecting such a change in the uh, political system, but uh, the the film um, it, you know, is has turned out to be very timely and topical, and we are back with the story that the climate is dangerous and bad. It's urgent. The solutions are at hand, and we've got to use our, our voices, our, our votes, and our individual opportunities to change things fast. I have just two questions. We're going to run out of time here. I have just two questions to follow up on that. Uh, I think that the thing that this movie does so well is that while the first one was very effective in its use of graphs and numbers and facts and figures and that kind of thing, that's what they are. They're cold facts, numbers, and figures that we can process intellectually, but sort of emotionally, I'm not sure that that always connects with us. What I thought this film did so well is that as a person who lives in a city, when I see footage of streets melting in India, Mm. that's my doorway in, you Mm -hmm. know? That's something that I can relate to. Maybe it's simplistic on my behalf but when i see something that i can understand that's how i get the bigger picture yeah and i mean was that i guess it was deliberate it must have been deliberate on on uh, those decisions are made for a reason to show that footage yeah uh, well of course uh, bonnie cohen and john chink the directors uh, made uh, great decisions in my opinion i'm a little biased but i think they did an amazing (laughs) job a lot of the images come from my new slideshow, and wh- what I try to do with the slide material is to recreate for others the aha moments that I personally have had. And in that case, that's a great example that you use. That hit me the same way. When you see the streets melting. And people's shoes literally sticking, sticking to, to the, the asphalt. Yeah. Absolutely. I've got I've got a whole uh, deck of slides just of streets melting around the world, and there was a plane on the runway in Washington Reagan Airport where the people got on the plane and fasten your seatbelts. Then the flight attendant comes off, back on and says, "Sorry, we all have to get off because the runway's melted and mm. the plane has sunk into the tarmac and we can't move." Wow. Uh, and there are lots of examples of that happening around the world. Now we've built a civilization optimized for the climate conditions that led to the flourishing of humanity and now we're destroying those conditions we can bring it back we can stop 
the worst of these consequences, but we have to act. More of my conversation with former Vice President Al Gore coming up after the break. I asked him to answer his critics to explain why it is that he gets to fly around the world on a jet, leaving a giant carbon footprint behind. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. A little bit later on, we'll talk with Dunkirk director Christopher Nolan. First up, though, I'm speaking with Al Gore and Jeff Skoll from Participant Media, their new movie, An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power. I asked them to answer their critics. When I saw this film, and you're all over the world, and you're flying, so how do you offset the carbon footprint that is left by that? Because it's it's a question that comes up, I guess, and I'm sure you have an answer, but it's, it's, it's a question that comes up. Well, Jeff's company and my organization, we do a complete offset. I planted 16,000 trees on my farm last year, but we do other offsets uh, uh, in addition to that. Yeah, and uh, for all my organizations, for myself, for our films, um, we, we do uh, something called uh, negative offsetting. So uh, we, um, you know, we, we, we fund these things that will take coal plants offline and put on solar plants and things like that. Uh, but for every, for every mile we fly, for every uh, uh, trip we take, we actually double offset. So we don't just offset the amount we fly. We do a, a doubling. So if everybody did that, we'd have, uh, you know, no more, uh, no more climate uh, issues. That's a, it's a small statement, but uh, an important one. Yeah. That was former Vice President Al Gore and Jeff Skoll of Participant Media, his film producer. Their movie, An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power, will be in Canadian theaters next weekend. Maudie, the true story of folk artist Maud Lewis, it's a romantic movie about a physically challenged woman who found beauty in life's simplicity. It stars Sally Hawkins and Ethan Hawke. It was supposed to be shot in Nova Scotia. Ethan Hawke was all over that idea. He's owned a helm there for a long time, but then they moved filming locations. I've got a place in Nova Scotia probably in the late 90s, um, and I've been going up there, you know, once or twice a year ever since then. I love it up there, and I just kind of grew to love that land and the people there, and what that energy is about and I've met men like Everett and uh, I get when I look at Maud Lewis's paintings I just I get so moved by them and um, so you know it's through a friend of a friend that they thought I might like the script just because I liked Nova Scotia so much and they were right you know there's um, of course then they tricked me and the shooting ended up being a new fun but I was so excited I thought I could shoot this movie and live in my house but I couldn't <laughs> well I, I think the only part of eastern canada that's better than nova scotia or as cool is newfoundland it, it's it's really yeah. wonderful the people uh the the it's ruggedness the, of it, it all it, they're definitely brothers and sisters you know those two places yeah in the film ethan hawk plays everett lewis Maud's crotchety old husband i asked him what it was like to play a character who's not particularly likable but you want to have the audience on side with him all the way you know, it's always a danger. You know, one of the first things they always teach you in acting class is like if you, it's it's always fun and such a great experience to get to play characters that audiences love. You know, it just feels really good. But often to tell an interesting story, you know, you have to play people who are badly behaved, and audiences are going to respond. You know, and I I feel as as gruff and. Um, is unacceptable as a lot of 
average behavior is. It was not uncommon at all of men of that time period. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I remember my grandmother always accusing my grandfather of not wanting a husband, not wanting a wife, but a maid. You know, and Everett, I, Everett's not looking for love. Everett doesn't, you know, give a, a, a you know, what's the right word? Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't care about romantic love in that way. The, the notion is, uh, you know, comic to him. He wants, you know, uh, to be taken care of. Um, and um, uh, and he's somebody who, through the course of that relationship, learns how to love. And I, I found that story really surprising in the subtle details of their internal power shifts. Um, I thought were really true to life. Um, you know, that all long-term relationships have strange power dynamics when... The behavior between the couple is always shifting about who's in charge and in charge of what and what that does to their love and how that changes. And I just thought it was a, a beautiful journey to go from somebody who was basically, you know, abusive to somebody who knew how to love. There's a beautiful scene in the film where the excitement and joy that spreads across Marty's face as she negotiates her first big sale, that's only $5 per a painting and $1 for postage, uh, it's infectious and it's touching. I asked Ethan Hawke if he's ever had that moment in his movie career, that moment where he knew that everything was going to be okay. You know, it's a very interesting conversation. I, I've heard tales people having moments like that. For me, this idea that you were going to reach some level and then life was going to plateau out and always be good has never happened to me. Um, I've always had a sense of everything changing all the time. I I remember meeting Richard Linklater and feeling like, oh, this is really good. This is, I, I like working with this person, and I think I was, I enjoyed working with my own generation and getting to tell stories and feeling like, I, I, there was something about the feeling of making Before Sunrise with Julie and Rick that felt like, mm, I'm going to be able to make art in my life. And that's, uh, it's a relief. You know, I, I had this, as, as much as Dead Poets Society had been a, a blessing in my life, I, I, it also had was like some giant sword being raised because I knew it created an expectation and a potential that I felt like I was only worried I was going to disappoint. Meaning, what if I never have an experience like this again, you know? Um, and I was 17 when I had it. You know, that would just be such a drag. Um, and so there was that. But I also have to say that because, maybe because I started so young, I've been on a journey to get to that moment you described my whole life. I just keep thinking, when is it going to be, when's it going to get a little easier? Yeah. I always, it always, I, I, I always feel like a little bit like Sisyphus, you know, just always pushing his rock, never kind of getting where I want to be. And I envy people. I remember hearing this story about Jack Nicholson at Cannes Film Festival and he watched the screening of Easy Rider, and he realized that he was a movie star. He tells a funny story about realizing, like, oh, wow, I'm a movie star. Like, I'm going to do this my whole life. And I thought, God, what a great feeling. Yeah. Like, I wonder what that's like. And I, I never had that feeling, like, oh, okay, I'm going to be good at this. I, I've never 
Um, I never had that feeling. That was Ethan Hawke talking about the film Maudie. It's still in theaters. Check it out. It's a wonderful story, particularly if, like me, you're from Nova Scotia. Coming up next, we have Matt Reeves. He's the director of War of the Planet of the Apes, a big hit this summer. A couple of years ago, a few years ago now, he made a movie called Let Me In. We talk about that movie and more. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. Right now, in theaters, War of the Planet of the Apes is riding high in the box office. A few years ago, the director of that movie made a great movie called Let Me In. It was a remake of a Swedish movie called Let the Right One In, a teen vampire movie that you have to see. Go to the video store, go to your streaming service, and check it out. It's great stuff. It's also a Hammer film. Film geeks will know that Hammer films were lurid, they were wild, but this movie isn't like that. I asked him why. Well, it's interesting because those were the kind of movies, first of all, as a young person, horror movies terrified me. And my memory of Hammer films is staying up, you know, late at night and seeing them, you know, going through the channels and, and catching them on Channel 9 and them literally giving me nightmares. And because of exactly the things you're saying, they were so lurid. They had, you know, the, the sort of blood red and all of that sort of Christopher Lee stuff. I found it absolutely terrifying. And so it's, it's kind of ironic that that's what I do now is make these genre <laughs> films. And yet um, there's something about it that is a very uh, exciting thing to do. And there was something about the idea that this was the first vampire film from Hammer Films in like over 30 years mm -hmm. that I found to be really, really exciting. But it is a vampire film in, in a different tradition, and that has um, a, a lot to do, or everything to do, with, with John Lindquist's story, which is really, um, I think, an incredible story in that he, he takes the vampire genre and uses it as, as a way to describe the pain of adolescence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the interesting thing, it's a strange thing to say, but I found that, you know, in reading it and in the Swedish film and what we tried to do, I actually think that it's a very sort of realistic sort of tale, even though it's a vampire story. And that's part of why I think it doesn't have the sort of grand, you know, luridness maybe of the original Hammer films, because this film has a bit of naturalism to it. Well, I think all the best science fiction and all the best horror and all the best genre films aren't really about the horror and the science fiction. The and message under the surface, yeah. absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's one of the things, like I said, as a, as a kid, they terrified me. And in fact, to this day, if you were to show me a picture of Linda Blair and her Reggie McNeil get up and I wasn't prepared, you didn't tell me you were going to show it to me, I would, the, the hair stands up on my neck and I, the blood runs cold and I, I have a visceral reaction. There are things in those movies that just tear me apart, but it's really, the reason these things are so effective, I think, is because they are about something other than what the metaphor, you know, other than what the surface part is. The, the metaphor that they are um, using is a way to explore a lot of really sort of real and frightening things and, and to explore our own fears. And that's why, you know, you can make a movie about a giant monster trashing New York and it's really not about that at all, you know, under the surface. And that's that's sort of what makes it challenging and interesting as, as a filmmaker. And I think that the that genre films, my favorite genre films, as you're saying, um, are, ne are never about the myth itself. They're about what the myth is using to describe that's actually quite real. Mm -hmm. Well... I was put in the mind, after having seen uh, Cloverfield and then this film, yeah. I was put in the mind of, of John Carpenter, not stylistically uh -huh. particularly, but and, and not even, I mean, I, I, he makes genre films for sure, but sure. Uh, but every time out, he creates a new monster, yeah. you know, and, and he creates monsters and takes monsters, I think, that we're kind of familiar with yeah. and puts a little twist on them. Absolutely. Cloverfield, you made a big monster movie. Uh -huh. 
something that's been done a lot of times before, mm-hmm. but you didn't really ever show us the monster. Uh-huh. You and you 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 took a different tact on it. Sure. And and in this one, very definitely. I mean, I think you know one of the things that I thought was cool about the original, which we'll talk about in a sec, and the and the new film, is that there's no coffins, there's no castles, there's no uh-huh. capes, there's stuff, uh-huh. and it, they're both set in a landscape that's very stark and yes. white, and the complete opposite of the kind of gothic thing yes. that we're so used to with vampires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I found that really interesting. I mean, I think, is that, I mean, uh, are we, am I seeing the, the beginnings of a, of a long career of reinvention every time out? Well, it's interesting. I don't, it's, it's, the, I love the connections that you see. I think the connection that I see most strongly between the two films is that both of them, to me, are very palpably, palpably about dread. Right. Um, that that in, in Cloverfield, there's this sense of something that is coming, something bad that, that you're in the middle of. And it's that sort of drawing out of that feeling of anxiety. And I think what I responded to in Lindquist's tale was the idea of the metaphor, this sort of, you know, vampire story really being used to describe how it feels to be a bullied kid, how it feels to feel so alone, that to go to school feels like a horror story, to feel like it feels like a horror movie, and that the development of all of that in the movie was really less about the moments of sort of shock or the moments when things actually happened, but much more about the drawn-out anticipation that something horrendous is coming. And I think that that's something that I, I don't know, I guess I relate to palpably. And, um, and that's the connection I sort of see through the two is that there's, you know, even though stylistically they're quite different, but they're also very, very point-of-view driven. I mean, one is the point-of-view is so restricted that it's literally his handicam. It's not even HUD's point-of-view, it's his camera's point-of-view. But I tried to, as much as possible in the telling of this story, move it into Owen's point of view. I wanted to do it in a kind of, in a much more classical way, in a kind of Hitchcockian inspired way, or like a Polanski film or something, where you really get into the way the character would see things, but in a very classical sort of restrained sense. And I love that kind of filmmaking. And I think the fun thing about it is, is the idea of taking you through an experience and making you identify with that character, even as they participate in or are part of really disturbing things. You know, there's a scene where Richard Jenkins begins the sort of, it's the beginning of the end for him. Yeah. He goes out to get blood for, for Abby the second time, and it goes wrong. And that was really all inspired for me by Dial M for Murder because I started thinking, you know, what did Hitchcock do? He did this thing where he had a scene that was all about how they were going to kill Grace Kelly. And you're thinking, oh my god, these guys are going to kill Grace Kelly. This is terrible. He tells you everything they're going to do. And then none of those things happens. And Bit by bit, you find yourself, despite yourself, starting to actually identify with the killer. And you start thinking, oh, my God, oh, oh, how is he going to get out of this? And then when she actually stabs him, it's tremendously tragic. And it's somehow he's turned the tables and he's implicated you because you've actually felt yourself as a killer and actually got involved in his killing of Grace Kelly, which is insane. And I thought, well, you know, if we could do something like that where you see Richard go out and do something once and you just see it and you're, you're, you're horrified by it, then when that starts to happen again, if you start to then go bit by bit through that event as it unravels, that by the end, you might find yourself almost rooting for him to kill that kid. Just anything to get out of that situation. And that's what I love about movies is that they can put you in people's shoes and you can start to sort of see the world the way they do for just a moment and that's really exciting. That, those are the things that to me in trying to do those two, two movies it had a lot to do with point of view and dread and drawing all of that out and, and but I love the things that you were saying too. I think. Well you, you mentioned Polanski as well. And, and by and the way I, I'm a huge, I love John Carpenter like yeah, the, yeah. The, the thing I think is incredible I mean Halloween is amazing. The, the, the thing is, is maybe the greatest movie monster of the last 
you know, 25 I years totally ago. agree. And, and I, you know, also he's doing political things. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he is, I think he's an amazing filmmaker. And I think the thing is absolutely incredible. A monster that can be whatever it's going to be is such a crazy idea. It is right? a crazy yeah. idea. I was talking about that to somebody today because that movie came up and I was saying that it's almost as if, you know, it's one thing when you have nightmares and things start occurring that can't occur in reality. Right. And that's part of what's so horrifying. And the idea in the thing is almost as if your nightmares could come to life. The idea that there are no rules and that nothing yeah. is really off the table, that's a horrifying idea, that behind every surface could be a threat. It's yeah. kind of terrifying. It's not his best-known movie, I don't think. Maybe amongst you know, film geeks, sure. maybe, but but uh, it is, I think, his best movie. The thing, uh, I agree. Just, you know, I it's think it's a, a masterful movie. Yeah. I, I I think it's incredible. In fact, I watched it not that long ago, and it still holds up. Just it's just as good. It's an amazing movie. I would also guess, and and I'm going to get really sort of deeply film geeky for a second, then we'll move along. But I'd also guess that you watched Repulsion uh, sometime in the last little while. As yes, well. Repulsion and Rosemary's Baby. Right. You know, I mean, I I, I just apartment movies, right? And, apartment and, movies. And, and, and I got and actually, that. you know what else I watched? I, and, and this is not a horror thing, but I watched like Kieslowski movies. I watched oh, yeah. um, a short film about love right. because it was all because I remembered him. And also, I watched you know Rear Window because yeah. he's he's looking through the windows, yeah. like all that voyeurism. And yeah, apartment movies is exactly right. And, and right. I got that particularly in the scene. Uh, with uh, Elias Kateas when he's in the apartment, yes, and that and, and Owen's coming in, and yes. all that's happening, and it just the way you shot the floor, the way all that stuff. Oh, thank you so much. Me of, of those things. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was again. That's that sort of point of view filmmaking that I that I find so inspiring when I see and and so it was definitely an attempt to sort of draw from those kind of sources because there that kind of filmmaking I find incredibly exciting and yeah, yeah. and he is I mean Polanski is the master of that kind of mood that kind of and but so was Hitchcock too I mean the, the way that they know how to the anatomy of what they do is incredible when you break it down the it's kind of I watched really really old Hitchcock movies too um just because even even back in his early films, like the silent movies, the, the silent even, movies yeah. he still understood that construction in such a way as to create that suspense where he puts you in these situations and they are riveting. And I just was, I'm really blown away by that kind of, it's truly cinematic. It's doing things that only cinema can do and that is always exciting to watch. That was me getting all film geeky with Matt Reeves. His film War of the Planet of the Apes is in theaters right now. Go back though and check out Let Me In. It's terrific stuff. Up next, Christopher Nolan talks Dunkirk. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. Dunkirk is not your typical war movie. You never see the Germans, and there's no victory march at the end. This is Christopher Nolan's recreation of one of the seminal events of the Second World War. I asked him, why Dunkirk? Why make a movie about a battle an evacuation that wasn't entirely a success. There is something of a victory within the defeat, uh, which is very unique and which is why the story, I think, is so resonant. I think really, if you really reduce it to its essentials, this is a vast story that has to be told with an American budget, but it's a British story. And that's a difficult equation to reconcile. And I found myself in a position where I could get that done and so I have. And so does that mean that this is a passion project for you? It, this is sort of one of those things. I think <laughs> Everybody was also that. like, I didn't give a shit about the last well, one. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I think that there, there is <laughs> but, that saying I, uh, that I've heard often, and you can tell me if, if this doesn't ring true to you at all, uh, but there's one for me, one for them. Kind not of for me, no. I've never, I've heard that about other filmmakers. I've talked to other filmmakers who do operate that way. 
it's never been that for me. It really hasn't. And, uh, you know, I, I, I find filmmaking really difficult. You know, I mean, yes, it's not coal mining, okay, but it, but I find it tough. I find it physically tough. It's hard on your family life. It's hard on everything. It's it's all consuming, and I love it and I love movies. And so I don't ever want to do it for something that I don't really really care about. I think you know there are filmmakers I think who find it easier than, than I do, and then maybe that's okay. One for me, one for them. But I I want I want to do I want to do the film that I would want to see as an audience member, and so. You know, really, for me, Dunkirk, my pitch to the studio and my honest and heartfelt belief, and God knows I could be wrong, I'm about to find out, but what I really believe is that it's a universal story with massive spectacle and excitement. And so what I felt was, and my pitch to them, is if I can make a sufficiently intense and suspenseful telling of this story, I think I can wrap up an international audience in what previously has been seen as an exclusively British story, because I think the story is universal. Well, for me, I saw it a couple of days ago in advance of this interview, mm. and I saw it on IMAX. It is astounding. It, 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 from the opening shot of the five young men uh, walking through the streets with the propaganda uh, pamphlets floating down around them mm. to the gunshots that follow and, and all. Uh, it, I, it was immersive. I kept thinking to myself, I feel like I'm there in some way. I feel like I'm in the Spitfire, uh, the, the, the cockpit of the Spitfire. And then I read a quote from you where you say uh, that part of the pitch was, it'll be like virtual reality without the headset. And I thought, oh, that's it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's about, I, I call it an intimate epic. Uh, what it's about to me is a cinema of experience. It's about what films are best about doing, particularly right now when there are so many other options for entertainment for people or whatever. What movies do best is they create this amazing tension between sitting there in a theater, in a crowded theater, hopefully crowded theater, mm -hmm. uh, and you have an intensely subjective response to the material on screen. You, you have a very private response. And then you have this empathy, this, this magical, empathetic response with the rest of the audience. And that's what movies do. That's the magic of movies. And so what I really wanted to do was avail myself of that empathetic response that an audience can have to what they're seeing on screen. So, you know, you're looking at these guys on screen. They're not telling you who they are or where they've come from or why you should care about them. You care about them because you believe in the physicality of the situation they're in. You see the task before them and you don't want them to fail because you wouldn't want to fail if you were in their shoes. So everything we could do technically to make the audience feel like they're actually there on that beach or they're actually up in that spitfire, in that cockpit of that spitfire, or on the deck of that boat coming over and rough seas of the channel, you know, everything we could do to enhance that helps the narrative drive of the story, helps the empathetic uh, response from the audience. Well, the sound design alone, you know, as the Spitfires fly by, you can feel your chest rumbling. And, and it's just one more way that I felt that I was being pulled into the movie. Mm. And it works so well. Oh, thank you. Do you remember, if you think back to uh, your early life going to movies, is there a movie that you can think back to that was what you just described for you? Well, the movies, 
there's a handful of movies I always point to when I'm asked about my early experiences in the cinema. And the, the, the first one I always have to talk about is George Lucas's first Star Wars. I saw that when I was seven years old. And it still stands today in, in my mind as a demonstration of the absolute potential of, of cinema to create an immersive experience, take you away to worlds that you never even imagined. Um, that screening was followed pretty rapidly about a year later by the re-release they did of Kubrick's 2001. Watching that as a, you know, an eight-year-old, seven-year-old actually, uh, you didn't understand it. I don't understand it anymore today, but the experience of it was pure cinema. And you felt this opening up of the screen, this larger-than-life quality of the screen that's just able to, you're able to just pass through that portal into other worlds. Uh, and, and I think those are experiences, uh, you know, seeing Lawrence of Arabia when it was re-released in the 80s, I went with my dad to see it, and uh, just the sheer scale of the world that's created there, uh, taking you places that you, that you would never have the opportunity to go. That's the magic of movies, and, and everything I do is is really aimed at trying to get back to that for myself uh, and give that experience to, to some youngster who's, who's going to movies for the first time now. Well, that's why I think it's so important to see movies in a movie theater. I think it's primal. I think it's hardwired into our DNA that we are to enjoy stories uh, in a crowd with people. Yeah. You hear them laugh. You hear them cry. You hear them react somehow, sitting in the dark, watching a story is a is a wonderful communal yeah. experience, and I can't imagine watching Dunkirk on my television. No, I mean it's made for the big screen, and a lot of that is not just about spectacle; it's about empathy. Mm. And when you say we hear people laugh, we hear people cry, it's actually much more subtle than that. Even yes, that's there absolutely, and everybody wants to watch a comedy with a, a bunch of people who are laughing. But there's also this very interesting process of empathy that I've analyzed over the years as a filmmaker. You know, when I show my film to somebody, I don't have to look at them or hear them to know how they're watching the film. I'll listen to their notes at the end of the screening, and I will have felt those things as I watched it. And I've puzzled over this for years, and it's a, it's a, it's a borderline mystical phenomenon of, of empathetic response. But what it really boils down to is, when you're watching a film with a crowd, Part of your brain is also watching it the way you think the person next to you is watching it and the way you think the person three rows in front of you is watching it. You are tapping into a collective collective consciousness, really, and watching the film. That, that's the nature of the empathetic response. And it's the tension between that subjective experience and then what you imagine other people to be thinking and feeling, which is confirmed by the odd gasp or the odd laugh, you know, what have you. The audience, we, we educate each other as audience members. Um, and that, to me, is why movies will always be, uh, you know, uh, an incredibly dominant and important form of entertainment. Do you think that Dunkirk, coming along when it has or when it does in a couple of weeks, do you think there's a timely message for today wrapped up in this 77-year-old story? It's a story about coming together, about showing community. And, and it seems to me that when I look at the news that communities are falling apart, that people aren't coming together, quite the opposite. And this movie, in it's not a political movie, I don't think, but no. it is a, a movie that I think has a message if, if you're open to it. I think it does, and I, I wouldn't say that I was particularly dogmatic in making it, but the, the resonance of the Dunkirk story 
to me has always been about a sense of communal heroism. And when I think about it now that I'm finished, I look around me and I realize that we live in a time that bizarrely fetishizes individuality to the extent where we don't even require ourselves to watch the same news as other people. We just watch the news we want to watch and we hear the news we want to hear. Um, but that's how fragmented our society has become. And this elevation of the individual has come at the expense of the community and of the idea of community and what community can achieve. And so whether people are talking about the death of trade unions or you know, getting rid of government, small, wanting small government, wanting less government or whatever, this kind of demonizing really of what society has done as a community, uh, there needs to be a balance. And I think that Dunkirk as a story is a wonderful reminder of the power of community, the power of what we can do, not just as individuals, but together. There must have been moments while you were making the film, because part of it was shot on the actual beach, and, and I'm told that some of the, the small pleasure cruisers and things that were coming in at the near the end of the film were actually present on the day yeah. um, were. In, in 1940. So there must have been a, a, a sense of touching history or, or something that, oh, yeah. that, would, that would add something to you, whether it's physical or tangible or not, um, that, that made you feel inspired, made you feel different than you might have if you were shooting on another location? I mean, definitely. It's, it's a tough question to answer because I think the, your question contains the answer. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was at, yeah. well, it was absolutely a day, you know, where I found myself standing on the beach watching this recreation of these events uh, with the real little ships, you know, coming in as they would have in 1940 in the real location on the 76th anniversary of the real evacuation. That was a, an important moment for me, an important moment to sort of step back and uh, acknowledge um, what a unique experience we were having. That was Christopher Nolan talking about Dunkirk. Dunkirk is in theaters right now. See it as large and as loud as you possibly can. Go on IMAX, go on 70 mil. It is an astounding film that will kind of blow the top of your head off. It's great stuff. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Robert Turner on the board, and we'll talk again next week.